promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. Hello and welcome back to the Tread Weary Podcast, the audio arm of TreadWeary.com. I am your host, Pastor Carlton Smee, and it is a pleasure to gather with you again as we are making our way through the Gospel of John. Here at Tread Weary, we are all about the Gospel. We're all about what it is that God has done for us because we can't do it on our own, what, what Martin Luther would call the bondage of the will, where we can do plenty of good uh, horizontally, we can we can do plenty of good uh, for our neighbors and uh, not be you know whatever be quote unquote good people whatever we want to term that as because uh, even even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while. But uh, what the bondage of the will is about for Luther is this bondage of trying to make ourselves worthy with God that that every single thing we do to try and make ourselves worthy are already coming from the wrong motives because we're wanting to make God pleased with us. Whereas God is pleased with us on his own account through what it is that Christ has done to remove our sin, to, to save us from ourselves, but also to save us from, from, from death and the devil, as Luther would talk about. And so we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we've been looking at it partially through that lens, but also partially through the lens of worship, trying to understand a little bit about how we can understand the Gospels and understand how we should worship or what worship should look like or what worship means by reading them in light of what it is that Christ has done. How our worship is a response to what Christ has done, but also our times of gathering are times for us to receive from God the things that we can't find somewhere else. Well, today... We're continuing in chapter 12, and we're going to be dealing with a brief text, one that is familiar to everyone, I think, even if you are uh, haven't been in Sunday school for a long time, you'll probably know about the triumphal entry, basically the Palm Sunday text that we have here in John 12. But we're going to do something a little bit different as we as we look at it. But let me, let me read that for you here. Uh, it's going to be John chapter 12, starting at verse 12, and then we will uh, get to looking at some other things, such as Psalm 118 and other pieces of Scripture. Here are these words for you out of John. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, 
You've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that you'd open your word again to us. Have Christ come to us, your son, humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, but also humble and lowly in your word, that he might do the work that is needed in our hearts and our minds today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, this is very familiar. You can go to Matthew 21 if you want. That's the regular sort of traditional Palm Sunday text that we have right after which is then the cleansing of the, of the temple. And in Mark 11, uh, it's the same text, basically. And, and after that is the cursing of the fig tree and then the cleansing of the temple. And then Luke, it's Luke 19. And it's a similar setup with the cleansing of the temple happening after that. For, for John, it's a little bit different because after this, we have him forecasting his death and resurrection. And then we have him going to the upper room with the disciples. We don't really have a, a section here in this chronological area of John of his cleansing the temple. He actually cleansed the temple earlier in John, which John, I think, puts it there to be able to say, as soon as Christ has come as the incarnate word, he has begun to do the work of cleaning out uh, the world of the chaff so that the wheat might uh, bear fruit in the kingdom of God. And so he's come already in his incarnation and in his ministry to do the work of the forgiveness of sins and the and the rending of hearts. And, and the other gospels tend to have it here as his entry into Jerusalem because it's his entry into preparing the temple for the work that he was going to be doing of tearing it down that he might be the temple for us. Well, this section has always intrigued me because there's, there's a few things that, that deal partially with our worship, but are things that we often look past. For instance, it's often been told by some people that him coming on a donkey is sort of disrespectful or something, as though it's, it is this humble thing. But the, but the truth of the matter is, is that if a king were to enter in to a town on a horse that would be coming as an army, coming as as uh, one to conquer, whereas Christ comes on a donkey, which is the symbol actually of peace, of coming in peace, that he is this prince of peace, and that was going to be his work. But what it also symbolizes, if we don't think about it, but we should, is that the war is already over. By his incarnation, by his coming into the world as the Christ child and his, his ministry beginning and him heading towards the cross, the victory is already done because the world's going to do to him what it's going to do to him, but he is going to win in the end. But also then we have these confessions made by the people. We have them crying out. After they hear that he's on his way, they do something interesting. They go and get palm branches and they go out to meet, meet him. And they, and they keep shouting, it says, Hosanna, which is, is, is the Aramaic or, or Hebrew word for, for save us. Save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then it says that he fulfills Zechariah 9 by riding on that donkey. Well, the crazy thing here is that 
what we what do we hear here in verse in in, in uh, verse thirteen of John twelve, but also in the Matthew text and the Mark text and the Luke text, we hear Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, those of you who are of a liturgical tradition would probably recognize that. You probably will recognize that because it's actually part of our communion liturgy. Have you ever noticed that? That if you are in a, a, a Lutheran church or uh, Anglican church, Episcopal church, uh, Catholic church, uh, some others that actually use the full liturgy especially for when we celebrate communion, we, we have the great thanksgiving, which is the Lord be with you and also with you or, and with your spirit, depending on what church you're part of. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. And then the pastor or priest does a long uh, prayer of, of a sort. is called the preface, sort of this, this introduction to the, to the rest of the liturgy going into the communion rite. And then we sing the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. And, and it's holy, holy, holy Lord, Lord God of power and might. And that sounds normal, right? But then we finish it up with, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Here proclaiming the very same thing that is proclaimed by the people as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, humble, riding on a donkey. That it is that there in our communion, we are calling forth and giving thanks that Christ is coming to be present with us. And so you read this text, regardless of the, of the gospel writer that you are reading it from, and the very first thing that you should do is it should turn your mind towards your worship. That it is that when we come to communion, it's not an interruption in the, in, in the service. It's not time for snacks. It is Christ giving of himself to you because he has decided to do that for you. And that we give thanks and praise to God for that, and we call for him to come every single time. Save us. Hosanna in the highest. As loud as, you, as we can tell you, Lord, please save us. It's like putting an exclamation point there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who is going to come in bread and wine. Well, it is, por- it is important also to notice that one of the problems, as was dictated earlier when we were, uh, last week, when we were taking a look at the fact that now they're going to kill Lazarus because he's causing a problem too, because he's sort of this, this, this picture of who it is that Christ is in the, as far as the resurrection and the life, the one who's coming into the world to interrupt our religiosity, to interrupt the opportunities for us to try and be who we want to be before God and Christ comes to take that away from us so that we can't decide who is in or out, but Christ is coming to raise the dead, to, to find dead sinners and give them life. Well, it says here that people were doing this. They were getting the palm branches to welcome Christ. It, it, it would have been a, this big symbol for them, which we will, we will come to in a moment. And here it says that, that part of it was that they continued to testify about what it is that he did for Lazarus. And it causes the most harm for the people that, who, that were in power because it says, we don't really care about you anymore, priest. We don't really care about you anymore, Sanhedrin, the powerful, the, 
the wealthy, the, the Sanhedrin being mostly populated by the Sadducees, who were the the political elite of the day. They weren't necessarily true believers, if you want to put it that way, uh, of, of the Hebrew kind. They, they didn't really hold to a lot of the spiritual stuff. They were sort of traditionally Hebrews, tra- traditionally Jewish. And so for them, it was more about control. It was more about power. It was more about politics. And here they're upset because that is being stolen from them. Well, it fits for that stealing to happen. Because the quote that comes out of here, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I said, I kind of I kind of gave a, a, a precursor of that, that it comes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is part of the Halal Psalms. These are, these are psalms that are specifically to be sung and or read at, um, sung and or read at Passover, as well as Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, they, they would have been, Psalm 118, 18 would have been one of the first psalms that a young Jewish boy would have had to memorize. And the interesting thing is that it, it was, it, it's called the Great Hosanna because they would sing the psalm, the, the Second Temple Jewish believers would sing the psalm, and the, and the tradition goes that they would have their palm branches and that, that were, were symbols of them. They would be building their tabernacles during the Feast of Tabernacles. This would have been a feast uh, farther down uh, towards what would have been what would be normally our fall season, sort of. And they would have these palm branches before they'd make these, these tabernacles, these tents that they would dwell in, just as they did in the wilderness to remind them of that. And they would march around the altar in the temple once each day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. Does that sound familiar? Those of you who remember the story of Joshua and Jericho, right? <laughs> Marching around the temple, doing what it is that God has done, and then announcing the fact that, that God was going to bring them the victory, that God was going to bring down the walls. Do you see symbolism in that in worship? Symbolism in that in the temple? That it is that they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the one who's going to come and knock down the walls that are barriers between us and God. That he's one that is going to come in the name of the Lord, come with God's authority. And that is what they're confessing here by using these words from Psalm 118. Whether they're thinking about it or not, in part what they're doing is that all of which they would sing about there in Psalm 118, a psalm that, that some uh, scholars would say were, was written during the time of Nehemiah, around 444 B.C., declaring what it is that God has done, that there in Christ, the one who's seated on that, on that donkey, on that colt of a donkey, not even an actual donkey, was the one who was to fulfill the working that they sing about in Psalm 118. Well, let's turn over to Psalm 118. If you just turn to the middle of your Bible and let it fall open, it should fall right at the Psalms, depending on how long of a concordance and how long of an introduction of your Bible you have. And then you turn to Psalm 118. You, you should have landed pretty close to, to uh, Psalm 118, probably somewhere around Psalm 119. And you just turn yourself back there to Psalm 118. And let's take a look at this really quick, because you'll notice a few things that fit in with what it is that happens here in the triumphal entry, what happens here in Christ coming to us in the way that he's going to come to us, not as some, some king marching into battle, not as some king returning to the city 
uh, as as a victor, but as a king who's entering into a city that doesn't even know it is lost yet, a city that of of people that didn't even know they were at war, and this king is coming to them in peace. Well, if they were to sing this, if they were to to sing this psalm, it, it begins there with a declaration of God's mercy, a declaration of God's loving kindness or hesed, uh, this, this declaration of what it is that God is about, this, this faithful love, this love that is attached to God's promise. And so they would be proclaiming that of what it is that God is doing. And then if you go down to verse 6, there we have again the declaration of this promise, the Lord is for me, I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? This, this should have been a problem for some of those who are in the political elite, because we, when we get into the political elite, we consider ourselves important. We consider ourselves necessary, even though often we are not very useful. And this should have been a problem. This should have been a red flag for those who were in leadership, because it would be saying, God matters more than you, that he is our help, he is our salvation, saying that we don't trust in princes, We don't trust in nobles. We don't trust in human beings. We trust in God alone. And then if we continue down to verse 14, 13 and 14, they pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Notice what happens is that it takes this this psalm here, as it's being quoted by these people, as Christ is coming in, in part, without them knowing it, by quoting from Psalm 118, by quoting that he is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, the one who's going to save them, they're saying that their strength, their song, and their salvation is not theirs. It actually belongs to the Lord. It belongs to this one who is coming, that it is outside of our control, that that any sort of, of article that we add to it of saying mine or my actually belongs to Christ, and it is only ours because he gifts it to us, this gift, that there's no opportunity for self-vindication. It is what God has done. And then I always love uh, 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16, talking about the right hand of God performing valiantly. When you see the right hand of God, I always want to think of Christ, because what do we confess in our creed, but that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's seated there as the trustworthy one, but also to to talk about the right hand. If you have your military advisor there, your general, and he's the one who's going out and leading the army, you're trusting him to win victory for you. There of this Christ doing that, just like we would trust a quarterback to win the game with his arm if necessary. Then verses 17 and 18. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. This declaration of resurrection, this declaration of the defeat of death. We're really good at talking about Christ dying for our sins, but we never think about the fact that he died in order to put an end to death for us, that our physical bodies might fail, but they will be raised to new life because of him. And, it, and there's kind of this cheeky connection of what it is that he does with Lazarus, that, that it all comes back to here, that, that, that God is the one who's going to bring life. And then we have verses 19 and 20. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks 
to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I always think here of the more traditional psalm that we that we sing or or chant or read from on Palm Sunday is actually Psalm 24. Psalm 24. You don't need to turn over there, but that's that's the one where we get the hymn, uh, lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. In battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors, then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. There saying, the gates are open, and here is Christ entering, but he's entering on this donkey. He's entering in peace, that peace has already been won, that he's, he's, he's in the process of completing all the work. Soon he's going to say it is finished and things will be done. And then after this, we have the section dealing with the cornerstone, which is used quite regularly in the scriptures, talking about Christ as that cornerstone, as that foundation, as that thing that the house is built Upon and Christ is that. First Peter uses it very plainly to say that he is this cornerstone and talks too about it being the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That there present on that day coming into Jerusalem was the day the Lord had made. That is this day that, that Christ was going to be fulfilling the confession of the people. Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Because then verse 25 is where we get that. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. Hosanna, we say. Save us. Do your work. And it fits that Christ's name actually means God saves. (laughs) And then we have verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I already talked about this. The Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. Communion. There that that every time we gather to celebrate communion, we gather wherever it is, we're basically celebrating Palm Sunday of Christ coming to us. Notice Christ comes to us. We don't go and get him. He comes to us. So that it is that when we fail, when we fall, when we have nothing, Christ still comes to us. And then verse 27. This one's beautiful, and I'd never thought about this until I started the study. That uh, verse 27, it says, this is what it says. The Lord is good and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Taking what would have been the sacrificial lamb for Passover and bringing them in to sacrifice them, to spill their blood for the salvation of people. And here, If this psalm is speaking of what it is that Christ was going to be fulfilling, bind the festival sacrifice to the altar. Well, for our worship, we gather as those who enter into a space of God doing a work on our behalf to give of himself as the sacrifice in Christ to you. That is what the worship is all about. It's not about giving you warm fuzzies. It's not about making you feel uh, uh, better about yourself as you leave. It's about Christ coming to you and giving himself to you. That even for one hour on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever it is that you gather with your people, that you get one moment of Sabbath rest from all the toils and trials and tribulations of the world, of Christ gifting himself to you even in that one 
small moment. Because then after all of this that God has done for you, after we proclaim the promise that says that the Lord is for me, Psalm 118.6, keep that in mind, church, the Lord is for me. Then we get to verse 28, and it's our time for our own confession. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. They're the people. In the midst of the triumphal entry, they're exalting over Christ. And without even thinking about it, they're attaching to him all these promises, all these things that are taking place in Psalm 118. And they're attaching those things to Christ. And and at that moment, without even knowing it, they are declaring, after they say, the Lord is for me, they then say, you are mine, God. That's actually the movement that has to happen for us. The the promise of God has to be proclaimed in our ears by a preacher to tell you that now in Christ, God is for you. And the movement of the Spirit upon our hearts and upon our minds and working through the Word and the sacraments is to bring us to the point where we say, you are mine, God. That it moves away from just being for you and you saying of God, you are mine. It is there that in the triumphal entry, we see Christ truly bringing to a climax the work that he is about to do at the cross that he enters willingly into the city that he knows is going to be crying, crucify, crucify, just a few days later after saying Hosanna, and not knowing that both those words basically become the same thing for us. That even when we cry out, crucify to Christ, it is him doing the Hosanna work we need him to do. Well, church, we will gather again next week in this podcast. We'll continue looking at chapter 12 of John, where where Christ declares his uh, work and what it is that he is going to be doing. And it's an interesting passage because it has some foreigners coming and saying, we want to see Jesus. That should be our cry every Sunday. I want to see Jesus as we enter into church. But until next week, may the blessings of God be upon you as you go about this time, wherever you may be traveling. If you take, can, take the time to go on to wherever it is that you are listening to this and give us a rating, give us a review, send us any questions as well. You can do that through my website, treadweary.com, T-R-E-A-D-W-E-A-R-Y.com. And uh, you can take the time to send us some of those through our contact list. Otherwise, also uh, find me. Uh, through email, either treadwary1 at gmail.com or pastorsmee at gmail.com. Well, blessings be upon you this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.